Gentlemen, you are listening to the Gird Up Podcast. My name is Charlie Ungamak. This project, this Gird Up Project is my dream child. I love it. I couldn't get more joy out of sharing the message of the gospel with you than I do. I really, truly am fascinated by masculinity, um, by male identity, um, by who I am as a man, and I can honestly say that every bit of study I do, I've never regretted any study I've done on the concept or on the subject, whether it's actually in Scripture or that's reading things that people have written about Scripture. I love it. I can't get enough, and that's what drives my passion for discovering what it really means to be a man of God. The thing that uh, continues to impact me the most, more than anything else, is um, the ability to sit at great men's feet and just really glean from them what it means to be a man. And uh, it's been a little surprising to me what that actually means. I honestly expect a lot of like the visceral, physical things, um, the you know real-life applications, the what every man needs to know to be a man type stuff. But far more often I find myself um, renewed spiritually, continually revising what I know about God um, and the way I see God and the way I see the world around me, particularly as I read books about masculinity and manhood, I just, the Lord continues to shape and mold and fashion me in some unbelievable ways, and I pray that every man gets to experience that, because I was raised in just about the best place you can be raised, just about the best household you can be raised in if you want to be a man, and uh, still find myself learning every single day that there's more. There's a greater picture. And I think the reality is, it's not I think. The reality is, I was made in the image of a God who's beyond my own comprehension and understanding. And if I'm made in his image, there's more to me than I can comprehend or understand as well. Which is a pretty cool thing. And it means i got to lean into the study of scripture, to lean into to learning about God. Because as I learn about God and as I study the scriptures, I also learn about myself. And this podcast is meant to share what I'm learning, what my brothers in Christ are learning about themselves, about you, about me, and about our Father in Heaven. This episode of the Gird Up Podcast is sponsored by the Christ for Disciples Podcast. Now, a good friend of mine, Pastor Paul Steinberg, who is the leader of chaplains in schools here in Milwaukee and also has just started a church here in Milwaukee, a new church full of the souls they've been reaching in their chaplaincy campaign here. Um, in our wonderful, beautiful city of Milwaukee. He, every every week he puts out five episodes that help apply God's word to raising the next generation. Ten minutes each weekday, listen to the Christ for Disciples podcast and get direction and gospel power to disciple the youngest generation. Subscribe to the Christ for Disciples podcast at ChristForDisciples.com or on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, and wherever else you listen to your podcasts. That's ChristForDisciples.com. I've said this before, I'll say it again, it's a daily listen. Um, If I don't listen to it a particular day, I listen to two episodes the next day. It's that important to me. It's that valuable to me, especially as I head off to school to work with young men and women um, who are just learning what it means to be children of a living and loving God. Today's podcast episode is also sponsored by the Iron Men of God Conference. Now, Christian men may face many challenges in our increasingly post-Christian world. One of the most important challenges Christian men face is defining what it means to be a Christian man living in this world. 
Iron Men of God, formed in 2014 by a group of laymen from St. Paul's Lutheran Church in Exonia, Wisconsin, works to address this challenge through the Iron Men of God Conference. Each year, the Iron Men's Conference speakers help attendees sharpen and strengthen their faith by using God's Word to clearly define our roles as husbands, fathers, sons, and leaders in our families, churches, and communities. Attendees are also encouraged in their faith by their fellow brothers in Christ. Join us this year for our conference and be strengthened and encouraged in your faith as well. This year's conference takes place on Saturday, March 21st, 2020 from 9 a.m. to 2 p.m. It's the seventh annual. It, of course, takes place at St. Paul's Lutheran School in Exonia. We would love to have you there. Um, Enjoy a delicious catered lunch and worship with your brothers in Christ as you learn more about who we are as men of God. High school and college-aged men can register for free this year at ironmenofgodwi.org. If you are not a college-aged man, you can also register at ironmenofgodwi.org for this excellent uh, opportunity to grow in grace and knowledge of the truth. It really is an excellent opportunity for men in southeastern Wisconsin to learn more about themselves, to learn more about their Savior, and connect with other men who are genuinely and passionately following our Heavenly Father. I hope I get to see you there. Um, If you come, make sure you stop by the booth and say hi or uh, shake my hand or whatever you want to do. But I would love to connect with you. I would love to see you there. It's March 21st, 2020, the Iron Men of God Men's Christian Conference. If you want to hear your own ministry or book or podcast or business or whatever it is, if you want to be advertising for other men on this podcast, make sure you reach out to me at the end of the show. With all that said, let's get started with today's interview with Pastor Tristan Poustian. Oh, and a reminder that any thoughts expressed on this podcast are just that. They do not necessarily reflect the faith of the speakers. Um, or the people participating in this podcast, and none of the doctrine or theology or teachings um, mentioned in this podcast are meant to reflect the um, official teaching or doctrine of any particular church or calling body, nor is any of this content meant to be used as a public statement of faith. Now, let's get started with the show. You are listening to the Gird Up Podcast. To gird up is an ancient way of preparing oneself for hard work or a battle ahead. Our work is to reclaim masculinity in the modern world and to live out our calling as men of God. Here you will find a community of believers working hard to become the men that God created us to be. Now it's time to roll up your sleeves and let's get to work. Alright. Yeah, we're rolling. That's really hot. All right. So, special guest today on the podcast, Pastor the Reverend Tristan Paustian. What's up, Tristan? Not much. <laughs> not not too much. It's good to be here in uh, Hortonville. Yeah. I mean, it's your house. I mean, that's where so. I always am, so it's always good to be here. Yeah. Always. <laughs> so, you are my cousin. Not just a pastor. You're my cousin. Yes. Which is cool. Yes. Regrettably, yes. <laughs> You got that awesome situation where my dad's two sisters married sisters, brothers, right? And so your dad is, okay, that was a really weird way I of saying I was going to say, I've never heard it explained so well, but then. <laughs> and I stopped. I could explain okay, it. so two I've brothers about, married two sisters. So. I've had to explain this a lot, so. 
Yeah. So my roommate is your cousin, but he's not my cousin. Yeah. So my roommate's mom has two brothers who married my dad's two sisters. Now even I'm confused. Right? <laughs> anyway, two Paustrum brothers married two Ungamak sisters, and and that's where you come it, from. Yeah. Well, one of them. Yeah. Yeah, one of them. One of those. Yep. Yep, that's me. <laughs> now I'm here. So, so you mentioned Hortonville. We're in Hortonville right now, and you are pastor here. Yes, I am. I'm the reverend here. <laughs> the reverend. Well, the, tell us a little about the the church here. Yeah. So, for those of you who don't know where Hortonville, Wisconsin is, which is probably all of you, unless you're <laughs> there right now, which I am. Um, Hortonville is a little town just northwest of Appleton, Wisconsin. So. Kind of in the northeast part of the state, it's a town of about 2,700 people. If you look at the sign as you're driving into town, um, within a couple of miles, there's a probably double that. So probably about 5,000 people here in our town. Um, Bethlehem is the church that I'm the pastor at. I'm privileged to be there. It is a congregation that we're actually celebrating our 150th anniversary this year. So I get to be a part of that. And the congregation right now is about 800 wow. members on the on the records, about 300 people on a weekend. So it keeps things exciting here in Hortonville. Yeah, yeah so it's a, it's a great place to be. I've really enjoyed serving Bethlehem so far. I also enjoy the uh, kind of everything you do here people notice at home. I mean, I live in the church parsonage. So usually on a weekend, a lot of times someone will say, Hey, I, I saw you doing something in your garage last week. I saw that you had a visitor over the other day. <laughs> I'm like, okay. I, so that's something to get used to. I think I'm used to it. It doesn't really bother me. It's just a little interesting. Kind of just have to, I mean, I'm not doing anything anyway. Like, <laughs> right, right. Yeah, they're not like catching you do something. So. It's like, yeah, I saw you left the other day, and it's like, yeah, that's pretty much all I do. Is <laughs> I'm either here, just sitting here, or I sitting right here on my couch. That's where I spend most <laughs> of my days. <laughs> I'm either right here or I'm I'm not right here. Either, it's... yep. There's two options there. <laughs> Sometimes I just get out of town. What do you do when you get out of town? Do you like go to the next town or? Sometimes, go yeah. There's a or... go to Greenville Leo's Diner. Shout out to Leo's Diner. Is it good? Yeah, it's really good. It's a good. It's a. It's at the gas station in Greenville off of 76. For those of you who want to go to Leo's Diner, they have a really great breakfast menu. Um, I usually get the. Well, I guess I can't really say what I usually get. I don't remember. <laughs> if you go to Shackton, though, go to uh, the. Okay, I don't remember, but get the trucker's breakfast if you get there. If you can find the place I'm talking about, they have a good breakfast. I think I've been there. It's a it's a also it's a right next to a big truck stop. Right? Um and there's like a breakfast counter and they've always got like racing on TV and then maybe not. Sounds like a great place. <laughs> don't think it's the same place cuz it's just kind of in the middle of nowhere. Okay. Yeah. I I love 
I love going out. Would you always go out for breakfast? Is that, or or is it other meals? I I yeah I usually breakfast. I don't. I really like going out out for breakfast, and I don't know why. Maybe it's just like a fun way to start the day. I'll go out for breakfast any time of day. That's, I went um, to IHOP today. What time of day? It was uh eleven thirty. It was a great time to be there. I went by myself. I think it's the first time that I've ever gone to a rest like a sit down restaurant by myself. It was a really it was a I was just yeah, I enjoyed it. It's just me, just a man and his pancakes. <laughs> that sounds wonderful actually. Just a man and his pancakes. It's wonderful and sad. All Wrapped up into one meal. Well, and and you say you said you know first time you've been to a sit down restaurant like all by yourself, and I immediately thought really, but now that I think about it, I mean, I guess I've been to a couple of like, cafe type places, which kind of feel like a sit down restaurant, but they're not really. The closest, the highest, the closest I've been to that is going to like McDonald's by myself, and even then. I feel yeah, sensitive, like, like you know, sitting Jimmy by Jones myself. Or Subway or someplace. I just sit there and I feel judged, even though it's perfectly acceptable to be by myself at McDonald's. It's just like, like the eyes of the world are up yeah. on you. Everybody's looking at me. It's like the all-seeing eye is just staring at you. This man has no friends. Look at that guy eating McDonald's by himself. He's even sadder than us. <laughs> I wonder what he does. He probably just sits on his couch. He probably doesn't even know anyone. He probably was just sitting he at home and find someone to eat McDonald's with him. He probably just enjoys having the company of people that he doesn't even know staring at him. I kind of like that actually. I like to go to coffee shops and things and just be surrounded by people I don't know. I actually, yeah, I like that too. It's a little more acceptable at a coffee shop because that's what people do. There's a really nice coffee shop in Hortonville. I could just Sorry, tell you. I was just imagining for a second like somebody just going to like a sit down restaurant and just watching people, just like sitting in the corner and just staring at just people. Just your laptop out. <laughs> I was sitting there. I ate my whole meal in about ten minutes. That was great. I drank an entire like carafe of coffee. Carafe? What's a carafe? A carafe is like I don't know if it's the right word for what I had, but a little. I guess I should say like a pitcher. Oh really? Of coffee? Wow, that's it a lot wasn't of coffee. as much as I. It was like three little mugs. Oh really? That's it? Yeah, it wasn't very spacious. They Must gave me my own. I must have looked really important. They gave me my own carafe. They're probably whispering in the back. That's the new pastor. Up in Give him his own carafe. It was in Appleton, so. But I always seem oh. to see people from Hortonville in Appleton, so. Well, I, we were talking before the mics were rolling. A lot of people live. Out here and work in Appleton, huh? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. In the past, it was more of a farming community, but as that's become less so, people still live on their old family farms. They kind of develop them, build houses there, and then a lot of people work in town in Appleton. Not me, though. I work here. (laughs) Right here. Right here. Sometimes I do. Sometimes I do. That's right. I have options. Yeah. So the 150 years. So it has it was it has Hortonville grown a lot in 150 years or is it kind of just I don't know. It has not. No. No, I think I I looked at the demographics when I got here and I think 150 years ago 
there was like 1500 people and now there's 2700 people so for a long time it just stayed the same and it's hard to tell because there's all these farms surrounding the town so i don't know how you count who's in town and who's not but the town itself has not grown a whole lot the last 1500 years or five <laughs> <laughs> that too i mean there wasn't even it's in yeah but your natives i suppose probably native americans probably we took their land from them kind of a i don't know if that's true <laughs> i assume it's true yeah or they, I, don't, I mean or disease like, I, so i heard i've heard i i can't i can't quote the source and it's maybe inaccurate but i've heard that um before like the white man settled america that there was like it was densely populated with with native americans and so when we talk about you know in your history book when they talk about like uh the native americans being decimated by disease like in my head i always thought about like the east coast native americans right um and then like as they came into contact with europeans and like smallpox and all these things killed them off but um somebody was saying that they they're unearthing more and more proof that there was like not that they had modern civilizations per se but that they had you know thro- there was like there were a lot of native americans um per- especially in areas like this where they like can't explain why some of the burial mounds and things are so big unless there was some sort of plague huh. when you think about it from that perspective like it it, it does kind of make sense um, that actually, actually, the reason that came up was they're talking about the elk population, and how when Lewis and Clark um, traveled across the continent, they literally ran into herds of elk that like and bison and things. They were like dairy cows. They were just there, and they weren't afraid of anything, and they were just roaming around. Um, and the the types of numbers that they describe for years, scientists have been looking at that and saying like, "There's no way that's sustainable. There just isn't enough range." to support that kind of population of bison or of like elk or any of that. And they were, and uh, so one of the newest kind of hypotheses is that the native population was big enough to control those uh, game populations. And when all the native Americans died off, not all, well, not all of them, but when there was a large number of native Americans died, then the, the populations of these wild animals, like the bison population and the elk population and different animals skyrocketed. And like in the next hundred or so years, you know, 200 years to be kind of at its peak then when Lewis and Clark are coming through. And then as you know, it's being settled by people of European descent and then, you know, they obviously come through and just decimate the populations but they weren't worried about it because there were just so many animals. And that kind of makes sense when you think about that. You know, what, what was con- what, if, if these populations get out of control without humans, what was happening for the thousands and thousands and thousands of years before there were you know, European settlers? Some, something or someone was keeping that population in check. Yeah, yeah, I suppose. I haven't really done a lot of research. I I like to think that Alonzo Horton, who started Hortonville, was very friendly and not not taking advantage of people and 
Just found some free land that nobody had taken. Called it Hortonville. Yeah. I wonder. It was like I wonder if it was like a homestead, and he had like a store or something, and just called it Hortonville because it was like all his stuff, or whether he was just a conceited man and was like, you know what, I started this place. This is my. I'm town. calling it Hortonville. Well, he or did he like die, and everybody was like, we loved him so much. Let's no, call this place Hortonville. He didn't die. He started. He went out to California and started San Diego. He really? started. Well, I guess there was already the mission there, but he is like considered the founder of San Diego. There's a statue really? of him in San Diego. He did After a lot. He left Horton. Really? Yeah, he did a lot better there than he did here. Apparently. <laughs> wow, that's fascinating. Yeah, yeah, absolutely fascinating. So what he did here, I think he was from Missouri, maybe. Um, I'm not a historian. Though, this is so. like his thing. Like he goes around and starts cities. Yeah, he came up here and he bought a bunch of cheap land or something and then started selling it off to people to settle it huh. in the 1850s, I think. Huh. Then he Why went, here, I wonder? Just a great place. Why? Just a good place to be. <laughs> yeah, that's what they say. I don't well, know. Like It's only well, a few miles from what became Appleton, right? Yeah, so I don't know. I think part of it was just there was there was land I somehow he heard about I think he met somebody who said, Hey, there's cheap land up up in Hortonville. They didn't call it Hortonville, they called it something else then. Otherwise he'd been like he would be like, uh, yeah, I should go there. That's my actually there's a wow. pastor I saw on the call list recently with the last name Horton. Yeah, there's a bunch of Wells people named Horton. So if if he's listening right now, um if you're looking for a somewhere to be kind of <laughs> seems like you belong here. So consider coming here, I guess. I don't know if we can, you, we can talk. You give it me a call. your name already. You know, you belong here. You were meant to, to be here. Yeah. I don't know where to go with that, but <laughs> it's been ordained. It's been ordained. Your last name is here. You must be here. This is, is, this is the place where you belong. So if you're listening, <laughs> give me a call. There was a there was a Horton who taught at Atonement while we when I was in college. I remember observing in her classroom. Huh. Actually, I believe I believe we're somehow related to her. That would not be yeah, not be surprising. No, it wouldn't be. Related to a lot of people. Yeah. It's one of our dark family secrets. I don't know if it's dark. I <laughs> just how many people we're related to. I feel like when you're related to the Sharps, you're just related to everybody. If you've got a Sharp in your family tree, you're just related. They cast a wide net, yes. They do. Yeah. Well, it helps when you have umpteen kids in every generation. And Yeah, we should bring that back. We should. Our family hasn't been keeping up that legacy lately. Yeah, we got to crank out some kids. Find us some wives and crank out some kids. Each Ooh. one wife, yes. Yeah. One wife. That's valid. Wives plural because there's two of us. We don't want to I don't want it to sound like we're polygamists you know. or something. Yeah. That's true. That's true. I spent too long fighting that battle and <laughs> I'm finally getting over that reputation. Palestinians are polygamists or Tristan is a polygamist? Well both. No, that's just a disclaimer. That's not true. I I made that up. 
<laughs> there is no history of polygamy in this family for at least two generations. Uh, on the Nugamak side, I can at least five. Yeah. Well, we checked. Yeah. We did some research. Yep. We found this out. Yeah. Well, because I, I know it's a great, great grandpa was Charles Edward, which is my namesake. And we've I know at least to that point who their wives were, unless they had like secret families or something. I you doubt it. No, it's hard to tell when they're secret. Have you ever been told what Ungamak means? Means, uh, no, I guess I don't know. So it it means to be irksome or bothersome. Okay, <laughs> well that that I could see that. So it's a derivative of the old word. So back in in the northern parts of Germany, they would build prisons where your feet were shackled in, and the the ceiling of the prison would only be three or four feet high. So you'd be bent over, and you couldn't sit, but you also couldn't stand up all the way. Mm. And so that like feeling you'd get in your neck, your back, that uncomfortableness, that's, that's ungemak. Uh, uh, <laughs> wow, that's, that's that's quite a legacy right there. I'm, I'm glad I got rid of that name. <laughs> well, my dad always jokes. It kind of makes you wonder what our ancestors were like. And then, irksome. Yep, irksome and bothersome, like a pain in your back that won't go away. I don't yeah. know what to think about that. I don't know either. Do you know where Paustian comes from? No. Yeah, me neither. <laughs> Actually, I think it's a form of Sebastian. Oh, really? Yeah, which means like a... It was originally like a word for a pious person. Oh. Which makes make sense. sense. Yeah. 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 Cool. Very cool. We were actually going through this on at... Uh, um, I think I talked about something in my last interview, but we were going through this at, at school a couple of weeks ago. We were talking about names, and I told the kids, like, Charles means strong and manly. Edward means, you know, regal or royalty or, you know, someone of standing. And then Ngumak means irksome or bothersome. So a very strong and manly man of standing who is obnoxious or who's irksome yeah. and bothersome. I was like, that's not actually, that might not be too that's, far off. <laughs> That accurate. might be kind of accurate, yeah. 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 Okay, yeah. I think, you know, you kind of grow into your name. You know what Tristan means? No. Means uh, means sorrowful. So I'm a sorrowful believer, I think. Yeah, sorrowful but pious man. My middle name is David. What, is da- what does David mean? It's like beloved or something like that, isn't it? Probably, yeah. <laughs> Beloved believer. Sad. Sorrowful. Sorrowful. Is it so? Is it? Uh, what about like Tristan and I sold the? Wasn't it was? Yeah, that's a. It was a. Tristan was an a, a knight in Arthur's court, King Arthur's court, I think. Oh, and then. Okay. Wagner is that the guy's name? He he wrote an opera about it. Okay. A German guy wrote an opera about it and became pretty famous. And then there was a movie with... Uh, Did we watch that movie together? Yeah, James Franco was Tristan. That's right. Yeah. That's right. But no, my name is actually... My parents got my name from a book. That's right. James Harriet. Yeah, it's right on my I, sh- shelf over there. Yeah. I have the whole James Harriet collection. Really? So you, Yeah, I've read them. 
They're I love really, them. I know. I hadn't read I it. I really enjoy them. Uh, uh, two years ago, I think, I got They're the book. They're making a seri- a new series. Oh. Did you ever watch the old TV series? No. So Grandma and Grandpa used to have, like, on VHS tapes, like, taped, um, like, off the TV. And I used to watch them because I had read the books. I used to watch them when I would go visit Grandma and Grandpa. Yeah. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, I've never seen them. I never, I knew my name was from that book. And I had never read any of them until about two years ago, and I got the book, um, All Creatures Great and Small, James Harriet, and because I was interested, and I really like it. I I just reread it. I don't really reread books a lot, but it was worth. Well, reading. and and the and the James Harriet is a veterinarian, and and he works. Well, I guess he does a lot of work on small animals, but he also like specialized in large animals and in university and then goes to Yorkshire and it's like this eccentric uh, veterinarian that he ends up uh, paired up with named Siegfried and his younger brother, Tristan, who's kind of a wild man. Oh like, yeah. He's a ladies man. It makes me wonder. He's got it, a, he's got a pension for nurses. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder I if your mom like dreamed about him or something. I don't know. That, that came out what? wrong. But you know what I, mean? I hope so my mom's like, not listening to this. <laughs> I don't know what. <laughs> is that what so I meant? So she names her child. <laughs> right. So, but why? Yeah. If it was just a cool name, or I'm wondering. Like, why would you be like him or something? I'm thinking we should just forget that that was just, <laughs> I don't even know what to make of that. It's That's just, not what I meant. I don't even know what that would have meant. meant. That's not what I meant. Like if he was a heartthrob or something. That's what I'm. That's what so I meant. So you name your baby after a? I don't know. People will name their babies after quarterbacks. Have you heard of that phenomenon? So when when a when a team wins the Super Bowl, they like then when babies are born in the next year, that's one of the most common names. Whoever the quarterback was. So Patrick. like Indiana in Indiana, there's more kids named Peyton in Indiana than any other state. And then in Wisconsin in the nineties there was this tons of kids named Brett and like things like that. So I don't know. That that's what I was thinking of. I wasn't trying to yeah. be weird. <laughs> I I don't really know what that would have meant, but what the implications of what you just said are. <laughs> but Can we just move, we should on? move on from it. <laughs> yeah, he is a wild guy. He's mm-hmm. always like out Really late at night. Always drinking. drinking. Always drinking. Always crashing cars. Yeah. And he's totally irresponsible. He failed out of veterinary school. I, I don't know. If I've, I That's haven't. That's the guy to be named after. Right I there. haven't quite lived up to that yet. <laughs> yeah, you got to start failing at stuff, man. Uh. <laughs> no, but it's a good but he's book. he's also like the most entertaining character in a book, for sure. Oh, yeah. He's very, very likable. Yeah. Apparently everybody everybody liked him. Um that is interesting. It's a really interesting book. And James Harriet, he I don't know, he just has a way of telling stories. Like it's the most well, they're interesting stories, but on the other hand, it's like you would never expect a story about a baby cow being born to be something that you'd want to read. Right, exactly. Especially when he's in getting in graphic detail about, you know, like the process he's going through and where he's got his arms and, you know, what's what he's smelling and all that kind of stuff. And it's just fascinating. 
now I can't get enough of cows giving birth. I just go out to the farms and ask if they have any cows <laughs> that are giving birth. And just watch. And I just say, wow, that's that's nature at its finest. <laughs> and then they ask me to please leave. He's joking. Yeah, that's not true. I've never, <laughs> I've never wanted this. Either. I'd, I, I'll read about it. Yeah, but I won't go out of my way to see and, that. And my, I really, really, really enjoy in that particular book, um, his the his essentially the courting of his wife, um, or the woman who eventually becomes his wife, and just like first of all how, um. Like, the odds just seem so against him, even though they're not, but they just seem to be. Oh, yeah. Well, Like, right away, like, her father doesn't like him, but he actually does, but he acts like he doesn't. Well, she's, like, she's a really popular young lady. Right. She's got all these people that want to marry her. Yeah, lots of suitors. And one of them is, like, the son of a good friend of the farmer, her dad, you know. That was yeah. one of the entertaining. I, I would recommend that book to anybody. I I love the books, especially All Creatures Great and Small. It's just fantastic. Yeah. yeah, I would too. Yeah, highly recommended, especially Tristan, the Wild Man. I I think I think there's part of every man that wants to be a little bit like that, though. You know, that just like wants to be a, a little unhinged, a little wild. Well, he comes off as he comes off as cool, like. Really right, cool, he does come off as cool. Not that I would suggest living that way, but he does like in the stories, like he's obviously like James envies his right, envies him in a lot of ways, I think. So you are the young pastor at Bethlehem here. Um I guess the easy low-hanging fruit question there is why did you want to be a pastor? Why have you become a pastor? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I went to MLC, Martin Luther College, with... Well, we went together. We started together there, both teacher track. I don't think I've ever apologized for that day I just, like, hit you or choked you or something in the dorms at Christmas time. Do, I don't do think, we want to talk about this? On the, I don't think I ever apologized. I'm sorry about that. I think you did once. Did I? I'm sorry, too. My I'm bad. sorry for everything. Everything. I think I was just being a dick, but yeah, we were roommates. Our first it was year. awesome. We were it was good mostly awesome for the most part. And then sometimes it was not. We covered every inch of the walls and ceiling with magazines and posters. It was awesome. It was that was that too was awesome. And also, after a while, when and they when all it, started falling off yeah. in large swaths. <laughs> And you're getting to like the point of the year where you're going, it's just not worth it to hang it back up again. Yeah. It was so after a while it was kind of sad. Yeah. It was great right away it though. It was a metaphor for It was also I think it eased the transition to college because we had something to do. You know, we weren't just like sitting around wishing we were at home. At least for me. Yeah, but, we did spend several a, weeks. A lot of time doing that. And at first, like we had a lot of nice posters, but we also had a lot of like we ran out of good stuff after a while, so it'd be like a Chantix ad. Yeah, it's just like random pages from magazines. We're just desperate. Yep, I remember when I, I remember 
we hit the bottom of the stack of because we had been saving magazines for a while because we had planned on doing this. Well, you had, I had, I didn't have any magazines. That's okay. Well, so our mutual cousin, um, who's not your brother or my brother, but is a cousin. Oh, one of the one of the double so, cousins, my double cousin, right? Yeah. So uh, John Michael had done it in his dorm room. And had told us about it, or told me about we, it, or we saw it. We were on a focus. Oh, that's on, right. We were on a trip, and then when we decided to room together, we were like, "We got to do that." And it looked so cool when it was all up there. But actually, then... <laughs> the whole reason I was at MLC the first time when I saw that was because our cousin, our mutual cousin, I wasn't going. I didn't want to go to MLC. I didn't want to be a teacher or pastor. And it's nothing. It was just our entire family did that. And I'm not even kidding. Like I've, I've gone down the list for people and said how many people are teachers and pastors in our family. And after a while, they just, it's a lot easier to list the people that aren't or have never been. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I, I kind of wanted to do something different and but as a junior at MLC, or no, junior in high school, our mutual cousin texts me and says, hey, are you coming up on this trip to MLC? And it's like two days before the trip. And I'm like, no, I'm not. I'm not really interested. And he's like, well, we could hang out. I was like, okay. And so I went to whoever was in charge of it, and I I asked if I could still go. And I'm like, well, it's really late. Like, you're not going to have any stuff. Like, they're not going to have lunch passes for you and stuff like that but you can go so i went and saw all the posters and it was a nice trip i think i got sick i think i got sick every time i went there really yeah i couldn't eat for like several days afterwards but then oh i do vaguely remember that yeah and somehow from there somehow i ended up at mlc wanting to be a teacher i i remember well, part of it was that we had a lot of classmates going there, and I knew I could room with you, and if it didn't work out, I could always go somewhere else. If I, The opposite wouldn't have been true. It would have been hard to come. Yeah, that's true. Um, so I thought I would try it out for a year, and I was a teacher. I was studying to be a teacher for two years. Um, so we, yeah, so we did that to, for two years. We were in the same. Yeah. And then at the end of my second year, I switched to being a, to being in the pastor track, the studies in pastoral ministry, spam. spam. Yeah. Spam. And people have asked me a lot why I decided to switch. And I think it's tempting to come up with like a really good answer for that. Because after a while I was like, Oh, I really want to have a good story for this. But really ultimately it was as a college. Well, I'm sure like a lot of college students don't really have great reasons for but it, for me, it was like, oh, that'd be kind of interesting. And I just started thinking about it. And then I was like, oh, I think I want to switch. And I did it. And, well, I think a lot of things in life, like, you might not have the r- right reasons for doing it in the first place, but God uses that. And ultimately, I realized, like, this is, yeah, this is where I want to be. Um, and God definitely has used it and blessed that decision, even if it wasn't the right reasons originally for why I did it. Um, yeah, and I, I was very blessed after that in the 
what I've I grew a lot from there. I don't think I was a very good student until getting into that track and I don't know what it was, but maybe because you had to work hard and that I also really enjoyed a lot of the work that I was doing. Like the languages and stuff? Yeah, actually I really liked doing Greek and Hebrew. Um and I had to do Spanish too, so and I had already done all my gen eds. So my last three years were basically all languages. And I I was good enough at it that I enjoyed the challenge of it, I think. Um, and then going to the seminary, that was another huge blessing. And, um, man, I, I guess I got to the end of my seminary career, and I had a classmate who didn't end up going on to be a pastor, Um, But I realized at the end of that, like if I hadn't decided to become a pastor, even after all that, it would have been worth it because of all the, how much I matured during that, both like as a person and spiritually, especially like obviously is the most important thing. Um, Just being around other very strong Christians and just being around God's word for that long, it made a huge impact on who I am now. And I don't deserve to be able to say that, but that's, I'm really blessed to, to be able to say that. So even now, like starting out being a pastor, it was a really challenging transition to go from being a student for the first, well, not the first, but from the time I was six years old to the time I was 28, I was in a classroom. And now, last July, I started as a pastor. And that was a huge transition. And in a lot of ways, just starting out, it felt like, even though I've been in school for so long to do this, it's like, wow, this is totally different. Yeah. Actually, doing it is just a whole different ball game. But... um but whatever reasons I got into this, I've been very blessed. Like God has really blessed me. I feel like it feels unfair in some ways. Like I feel like I've been blessed more than even I can offer other people blessing. And like I know, so I guess in all in all, it's just a privilege to be able to be a pastor and to work in God's word every day and to share that with people. Um, it's not something I deserve and it's probably something that I don't thank God enough for because not many people can say that they get to do that as their career. That's a, just an awesome blessing. That's a nice thing that God still blesses us even when our motives aren't exactly right because otherwise... Um, otherwise, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I think a lot of times we try and claim credit for things that we really have no right to claim credit for. And it's really easy in a secular sense to just snatch up that credit. Right. Um, Oh yeah. Yeah. Especially when it's something that you just have an aptitude for. Like you were talking about with the languages 
Like for me, like since I was a little kid, just like little kids love me, you know. Like from I was from the time I was in fifth and sixth grade, and like there were just kids enjoy me for some reason, and it continued to be that way. And as I've gotten older, it's just that the range of kids has gotten bigger. But you know, it just for some reason I've been gifted. I shouldn't say for some reason. I know what the reason is, but I've just been gifted with a skill set that. I'm just good at working with kids. And, uh, like, I again, it would be really easy for me to say, like, I'm good with kids because I'm blah, 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 blah. But that's not something – like, I didn't sign up for that. Like, yeah. I didn't – I didn't – you know, there wasn't, like, a prenatal meeting where God was like, all right, Charles, when you enter the world here – what skill set would you like to have? You know, so, it, it so wasn't any of that. You didn't have that meeting. Oh, you did? I, yeah. <laughs> I thought everybody did. <laughs> well, no, you've, been, but, you've been especially blessed, you know. Oh, I, no, but I know what you mean. Like, I, well, I guess we're going through 1 Corinthians in Bible class, and there's a passage that says, What do you have that wasn't given to you? Like, how can you boast about any of your gifts? And so I think I try to look at myself in a way, like objectively a little bit, like I try to look at myself and my gifts the same way I look at if somebody else has a gift and like be thankful for it. I'm like, thank God that I'm able to do this. Just like I thank God for, for your gifts and for all the amazing gifts that people at Bethlehem have that if we didn't have those people, well, I wouldn't be able to do all those things by myself. Like, so for a while starting out here, you, I was more aware of like all the things that I can't do and I'm not good at. And I think that's the wrong way of looking at it. I think, um, just realize, well, I think part of it too is like comparing myself to other pastors and hearing what they're doing. Ultimately, like I just need to use the gift God gave me and I need to find people who will supplement what I lack and realize that that's okay, that I don't have to be, just because I'm the pastor doesn't mean I have, like, I'm a little, like, I'm a little savior of this church. I'm not the savior of this church. This church has been here 150 years, and that wasn't because of any one person. It's because of Jesus. Like, that's so obvious, and yet I I put on myself a lot to to have all of the gifts and, like, do everything um, and not realize that I'm not the savior here. Um, I just get to enjoy using my gifts in service to something really, well, the most important thing, which is telling people about Jesus. Because he's the savior, not me. Yeah, I, I think uh, another thing we, we also forget is we start putting the I in things, right? So like this is my congregation this is my church this is my classroom this is my home this is my family um but we are accountable for each of these things and you can't you're not a you're you can't be accountable to someone unless it's not really yours right and that perspective is hard to master but invaluable in actually like living out your day-to-day life. So 
like when we're talking about, you know, you know like you said, this congregation has been here for 150 years, you know, um, if you walk in and a lot of people do this, you know, you walk in and you say, this is my church. And in some ways that may be valid, but in the most foundational ways, it's a blessing that that's not true. Because if this church fails, it's your fault. And if this church succeeds, it's your credit and therefore your responsibility to continue that. And we just completely forget that all of this is orchestrated by Heavenly Father. And particularly when we're talking about spiritual things and spiritual enterprises, it's all about the Father. It's all about the Spirit. It really isn't us at all. We're just a vessel. Like he's just using us to do what he's going to do and what he wants to do. He's just looking for us to be yielded to him to let us do it through him. And that's incredibly comforting because, um, well, I mean, I, I don't think I've ever said these words before. Maybe this is a little her- heretical, but when I, it's not me failing. <laughs> Oof. That doesn't feel right to say that. <laughs> well, in a sense, like, like you are going to fail. Right. And God realized that's probably the comfort. The biggest comfort is God knew who who you're going to be and how you're going to fail before he ever put you in this place. This might be a better way to say it. And he put you there anyway. I'm not letting God down when I fail. He understands. He knows. Like It's not like if I don't do this, God can't work here or whatever. Like, it's not like if I can't make this project work, if I don't preach well enough, if I don't teach effectively enough, you know, then God can't work here. Yeah. You know, and the, I think the Lord's going to do his work. Yeah. I wish I could take credit for realizing that, but I know I can't because I, that was something that other people had to just pound into my head, especially the first few months here, where it's like I'm beating myself up over everything. And then, Somebody said it to me this way. God doesn't God doesn't need you here. Like this church got along perfectly well without you here. Um he wants you here. And he is giving you this gift of being able to serve this church, not because it's up to you to to save it. Like obviously you have a responsibility to do to work faithfully, but you're not he knows exactly who you are. He's not he doesn't have any preconceived notions about you somehow being the perfect person that will never mess this up. He knows that you're going to mess up and yet he put you here anyway because ultimately it's not on you. It's he it's his church. He says he knows those the people that are his. He knows those that are his and he's going to make sure that they get to heaven. He's going to make sure that they come to faith in Jesus and it's going to be either it'll be through you sometimes it'll be in spite of you the the important thing I guess is well I guess I don't know what the important thing is in this case but just to well he tells us to be faithful which is a hard thing to what does that look like but unless you're like purposely trying to mess up unless you're realizing like you really you don't have to feel guilty 
you don't have to like go through ministry feeling guilty about all these ways you failed unless you are well I guess if you realize that you did something terrible and you did it knowing full well that it wasn't the right thing to do at that point you go to Jesus and you're forgiven and he covers it up so there's really no I don't know it's there's no way you can mess us up that God can't fix it. Yeah. And the foundation of that, I, I, the foundation of that is in my relationship with my Heavenly Father, right? And, and I was reading, um, right now I'm studying up for the Iron Men of God conference. And you Again, before the mic was, mics were turned on, we were talking about that a little bit. And uh, what, I, what I'm going to talk about is the idea that when I understand God as He is, and the, the way C.S. Lewis always talks about it is, not knowing God as we imagine him to be, but as he actually is. Um, but how knowing God, knowing who and what God really is, shapes my masculinity. Um, so I've been doing a lot of studying up on such such things then. And uh, that that's a big thing that's been pounded into me, is different authors write about it in different ways. But this idea of um, we try and latch on to, so this is slightly tangential, but we try and latch on to things like um, if I was more self-controlled, you know, then this would be better or, or I could serve better or, or whatever. Um, I'd be a better dad if I was self-controlled. You know, I'd be a better husband if I had a little bit more discipline. Um, if I could be more patient, then I'd be better with my kids. You know, and, and so we try and force ourselves to be more gentle we try and force ourselves to be more patient. We try and force ourselves to be more kind and self-controlled. And we just consistently and constantly fail at it. And we get so frustrated, and sometimes it even makes it worse, right? So if you're trying to be patient and you fail at being patient, you get so impatient with yourself, right? And so it just, like, compounds the problem. And what, the, 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 what I'm seeing in multiple authors' writings is this idea that... Um, it's not my responsibility to take on those things at all. My responsibility is to completely resign my life, my being, myself, to resign everything to my Heavenly Father and let Him lead. Yeah. And let Him shape and fashion and lead. And He will give me gifts of the Spirit. If I'm lacking in patience, I don't need to work on patience. I need to work on my relationship with my Heavenly Father and when I grow in faith, the spiritual gifts will appear. Like so, if I if I find myself being, and this sounds almost illogical, but if I'm not, if I find myself lacking discipline, or I find myself being easily angered, I don't need to target the anger, per se, with my own effort. My effort needs to be to lean into my heavenly Father. And pray. I, obviously, I'm going to pray about the anger, right? But lean into my heavenly Father and let the heavenly, let the, the Spirit renew me, um, and let Him work in me instead of me almost taking a step away. It's okay, here, here's a better way to say this. Maybe a lot of times, instead of leaning into God to help us with these things and to grow and to be renewed and refa refashioned in His likeness, right? Instead of leaning into Him. A lot of times 
we take grace away from ourselves and try and like earn spiritual gifts. Yeah, no, I exactly. I mean, I think what you're, I've thought about this a lot. Um, basically what you're saying is we try to, it's like in uh, Galatians where Paul says like, if you started with the spirit, do you think now it's like up to you to keep going? Like it starts with the gospel. So it's not like it starts with the gospel and then, oh, now I'm a Christian. Now I have to figure out how to do all things. Like I have to start doing things right now. Um, you, the only, the fruits of the spirit come from the spirit working through the gospel. It's not like you, you become a Christian and then, all right, now I got to make sure I live up to that. Like I got to do all the right things and man, I'm not really, I'm not patient enough. I better, I got to work on that. Like that's, if you do that, like you said, basically what you're doing is you're going back to the law and making it all, and the law has a role in a Christian's life, but it's even when it is operating as a, like when we're using the law as a guide in our Christian lives, and we do, it also has to go back to the gospel. It has to be motivated by knowing what Jesus did for me and how he gives me the identity that I have. If I start to, like what, like you said, try to force it, then that's trying to, well, you're going back to the law, but you're also just forcing an external, you're trying to, you got to change the heart. Like it's a heart problem more than it is an action problem. And the only way that the heart changes is through the gospel. Right. And like you might need the law too, because you might need to say, wow, you really think like you're in control that much that you can just change yourself at will. Um, it might need that first, obviously, like the law always needs to work. Um, but ultimately, if you want to change your heart, it doesn't come from giving yourself more law and do's and don'ts. And while I really should be better, um, it starts with, like you said, well, giving yourself to God and by realizing that you're not the one who fixes yourself. Jesus is your savior. This is a phrase I use a lot for whatever reason. I found myself using it a lot. Jesus is your savior from sin and all of those big things in life. He also wants to be your savior from every little problem too. It's not like it's up to you. Like I I thought about that at Bethlehem. Like the challenges that our congregation faces, it's not up to us to fix those challenges ultimately. It's it's going to God and saying, you're the one that's going to get us through this. We People are just good at making messes. <laughs> We're good at messing things up. God wants us to, to realize that and go to him to, to fix it, to trust him to fix it. It's like all of those st- stories in the Bible, how many of those are the people, the ones that fix the problem? Like you think of Abraham and God promises him a son and he tries, he, he wants, he wants it to happen. Like he, he believes God that he's going to have a son, but he's at, after a while he's like, well, maybe, maybe it's up to me to figure this out and mm-hmm. maybe I should go take Sarah's maid servant or whatever to be my, uh, and have a child with her. My baby mama. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Hagar's, yeah, as a baby mama, I guess. But, like, to us, it's obvious. That's not that's not how it's going to work. Like, God's going to give this to you. 
don't take take this promise that God made to you and somehow put it on yourself to do it as if you're the savior. God makes promises so that he so that we put his our trust in him and expect him to give us what he's promised. Yeah. But that's hard when the Lord says you're going to have a baby and then makes you wait over 10 years to have the child. That's Yeah. If he promises you a baby, I don't think I can wait that long. <laughs> but he he hasn't yet. <laughs> I'm I just totally <laughs> cut off that conversation. <laughs> Yeah, so I, I uh, the other the other the another story that popped into my mind while you were saying that was uh, the story of is it Elisha, where there's the kings are the king is surrounded um, by the Assyrians, and Elisha comes out and his and his servants is freaking out. His servant says, Gehazi. Like, we're 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 surrounded," and uh, is it Elisha? Who says, you know, look, it's, it's that, you know, uh, we're surrounded by a greater army than they are. He says, uh, what there are say? more, well, I shouldn't have started saying that. There, there are more for us than there are for them or something like that. Right. And then, and then the Lord opens his eyes so he can see the, the angel armies that are completely surrounding the enemy. Um, and, uh, I don't remember where I heard that reference or, or why, recently within the last week and i immediately then started thinking about um other times in israel's history when um like it's clear that the lord is allowing just terrible and awful things to happen to the israelites many times so that they'll return to him um other times so that they'll finally do what he asked them to do right um, whether it's wandering in a desert, um, or whether it's being carried off into exile or all these situations, and all these different times. And, uh, the reality that, that angel, that angel army is still there in all of those stories. There's that angel army is still there. And I just had this vision or whatever you want to call it. Not that I had, you know, like <laughs> you had a vision. Okay. <laughs> Let's talk about that. <laughs> I had this picture in my mind of like. Um, imagining, so the 72 that came back from captivity to rebuild Jerusalem, you know, and the idea that, you know, just almost watching, like watching the angel army, like in great despair and sadness, like step aside to allow Jerusalem to be besieged and to allow them to be taken into captivity. And the angel army is still there. God is still in control. He's using this, and 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 he's it's it's got a purpose. And then the the, the angel armies come back. So no, sorry, the seventy two come back to Jerusalem. I think it's more than seventy two. I think it was. You're yeah. thinking like the I don't 72 know why that went down to Egypt. Yeah, you're right. My bad. Okay, but this this remnant comes back. The remnant. Yeah. yeah. Forget about the seventy two number. But the remnant comes back, and they're being like constantly pestered by other armies, right? It, to the point where they're working with one hand and holding their sword unsheathed in their other hand so that they're ready to be attacked. Yeah, I've been And there. again, <laughs> don't you hate it when that happens? Yeah. <laughs> That's what it was like over here building a new church at Bethlehem. And 
Yeah, they have their swords. <laughs> Those Horton Hortonvilleites, I don't know what you call them, but they're yeah, Hortonites. They're out there pestering them the whole time. <laughs> Hortonians. Hortonians. <laughs> Maybe. I don't know. Well, that's another place. Hortonia. Hortil Hort Hort Hortonvillians. 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 Oh, I like that. That kind of plays into the narrative that I was trying to... Yeah, it does. The Horton villains constantly pestering the churchgoers. That's how we present them as... No, that's not. That's not true. <laughs> Love it. Love it. But anyway, so like the idea of that when they're being attacked, like it's being allowed to happen and it's achieving a purpose. And that doesn't necessarily mean that God's happy about it, but he sees that this is the way to accomplish his means and his purpose. Um, and then I saw it. So then I, I immediately then started thinking about like along that same train, thinking about my own life and like wrecked my truck at Christmas time. And uh, this idea of like looking around me and, and understanding that there's an angel army. Right. And, you know, and that for whatever reason, the Lord said, and I've got some guesses as to what the reason was, to be honest, because I've, change like there legitimately in that moment parts of me changed i was like yeah we're just not doing this anymore but the uh like the idea of how many times have i almost been in an accident or something almost happened or like i was convinced i was gonna scratch that car or i was convinced that i hadn't turned the wheel fast enough or whatever uh, yeah and I just like somehow like there's no way like if we got out and got out the measuring tape and did some physics here, there's just no way oh, that I've that doesn't a, happen, you know? Yeah, I've got a great. But but so then ahead. that day, that happened, you know, and I wasn't hurt beyond like I found a goose egg the next morning like in the shower. I didn't even know I had one, so apparently I hit my head. But other than that, I had a concussion. Yeah, maybe that's why. I don't know. I've and that would be number seven. So let's hope not. <laughs> That explains yeah. a lot. <laughs> Thanks. The worst part is I was already this odd before I had the concussions. So it's all downhill. Just all downhill. But the uh um yeah, just the <coughs> idea that you know, again, I can't even take credit for like existing to this point. I and, can't. And, and when <laughs> this is all because of me. <laughs> no, 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 I'm just But but just I don't know. I feel like I'm just talking now. But No, uh, I I think that's true. I think if we realize, well, that's something Martin Luther talked about. It's always dangerous when I start talking about things that people said because I can never remember quotes. <laughs> I'm not good at remembering quotes. But he said, like, if you realize how many swords and daggers were pointed at you every moment, you would do something. You would freak out, I think, is what he said. I yeah. think that's what he said. You'd freak You'd out. freak out, yo. You'd be freaking out <laughs> all the time. And I am anyway, so freaking yeah. out all the time but yeah i know what you mean i thought of when i, I worked at a subaru dealership for a, a year while i was at the seminary and there was this one time i was always i was a lot attendant so i'd always be parking cars and a lot of them were just brand new subarus and one time i was backing in and it was like the end of a long shift or something or I was tired, or, and as I was backing this new Subaru into the spot, I accidentally, I hit the gas instead of the brake. Oh, jeez. Oh, no. 
And it was, there was, and it was surrounded by other brand new Subarus and I hit the gas instead of the brake and I just, I panicked. So I, at first I couldn't even figure out what to do, but somehow, somehow I got to the brake and I didn't hit a single thing. And I think that was the angel army. Yep. That was, they were like, this is really mundane. (laughs) This guy's a mess. Yeah. But it's, uh, yeah. I think I have a bigger army than most people. Just because (laughs) they know. There's a disproportionate number of angels just on standby. He needs a lot of help. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, But but the comfort in that then is I've got free will and I can make my decisions. Um, But I've been called in eternity to go home to my father. And as a being outside of eternity i already sit with my father in heaven you know like i already sit at his side in eternity and outside of our okay i don't want we don't need to get into that conversation but i don't know where to you're getting into some some of your vision stuff now oh jeez. okay so if eternity doesn't have a beginning and an end and god isn't restrained by our frame of time yeah um and I will, when I die, be with him. That's not to say that I'm not here right now. <laughs> oh, jeez. <laughs> are you? Are you? I, I are am. You having a vision as we <laughs> yes. speak right now? Stop. Stop. No, I know. What you, well, actually, no, yeah. I have no idea what you mean. So you can just keep explaining if you want. Uh, I'm I'm nervous. <laughs> no, just okay. So if if God's outside of our frame of time, right? Yeah. So if my understanding of God is in this like perfectly squared with Earth time thing, you know, where He's you know the sun goes around, we go around the sun, I guess, and the moon goes around us, and all that, right? That's yep, that's true. But God's outside of that. That's something He's created. Yep. And so He's outside of that. And when I am with God in eternity, I will also be outside of that. In eternity. And if there is no time in eternity. Then you're already. Then we're already there. What? Isn't that just mind blowing? I get. Yeah, I don't. But I'm not there. But in eternity, I am there. And that's also not to say that I was there before and now left there to be here and we'll go back again. I'm not saying that. Let's move on. (laughs) I like to think of God being in eternity like. He's looking at, you know, like a tapestry where it has like, you see the whole story all at once. Mm. And I th- I find that interesting because then I think of, well, for God, for him, this moment right now is happening, but he's also at the first moment when Adam and Eve are in the Garden of Eden. He's there too. And at the last. In the last moment. See, he sees it all at once like a tapestry. I think that's interesting. I really like that also because a tapestry is just something hanging on a wall. It's not the house. It's not the world. It's not everything. It's part of something infinitely greater. A castle. Yeah. And I think we like to think of this as it, right? Maybe you do, yeah. <laughs> Put this, this earthly veil, if you will. That that's it. Um, but God is 
infinitely more than we could ever imagine. I mean, even just the miracles of Jesus, John says, is more of them than could fill every book, every page of every book that had ever been written. There wouldn't be enough books to write about everything that Jesus did. And that's just in his three years of ministry on earth doing physical miracles. That's pretty And wild. it's already beyond anything we could imagine. I imagine, and that was not the fullness of God. Well, I mean, Jesus was the fullness of God, but that's not the, that's not like was, all that there is of God. Yeah, it was his humiliation. Right. When he put aside. God is infinitely more than that. He's infinitely more than infinite. And we like to, so this is a big G.K. Chesterton thing especially with rationalists, whether you have this idea of I take God and I try and fit him, like form him down and shape him into this thing that fits into my human brain that I can completely comprehend. And that's a very small God. Yeah. It's a very, very small God. And it's a terrifying idea that I could completely fathom and understand the master of the universe. It's also incredibly arrogant to think that. There's a book called that. It's called Your God is Too Small. It was it was by a I think it was an Anglican priest. Which kind of talks in depth about that in a really interesting way. All the different ideas that we have of who God is and how they're much too small to actually describe. Like a lot of the like you said, if you're arguing with well, you're talking about arguing with a rationalist, I think what he was doing too was like just People who say they don't believe in God, well, maybe the God that you believe in isn't really, like, your God is too small. You have such a small image of who you think God would be if you did believe in him. Mm -hmm. That was a, I think it's a C.S. Lewis quote, too. Like, tell me about the God you don't believe in. I probably don't believe in him either. Yeah, that's C.S. Lewis, yeah. Yeah. It's snarky C.S. Lewis, old Jack. He's a very sarcastic man. I love it. Jack? Did you call him Jack? Yeah, he was known by as Jack to his friends. I call him Clive. Clive. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but he went by Jack. I don't know why he went by Jack, but he went by Jack. Probably because he didn't want to go by Clive. Probably. What's his middle name? Clive Staples Lewis. Really? Yeah. I've never known. I knew his first name was Clive. I didn't know his Staples. Yep. I think that's true. I think that's accurate. Or I could just been. They might have just made that up. (laughs) No, it's true. And then J.R.R. Tolkien is John Rule. Something. I don't know why I brought that up because I didn't. Starts with an R. Ronald. R E U E L. Yeah. Yeah. So now you that's a not a really helpful fact to know but <laughs> I I watched like two episodes of a show on I think it was Amazon Prime where they were talking about uh J.R.R. Tolkien's um like process in writing the Lord of the Rings and the idea that he had like written the elvish language just for fun, yeah. Decades prior, yeah. He inv- and then he when he started language, inventing yeah. these worlds for his children, he was like, "Well, oh, I already have this Elvish language 
written, I might as well use it. He must have been a weird guy. Well, he wrote the whole Silmarillion, too. That's a weird book. I, I could never like, get into that. He wrote his novels and then, like, hinted that there was a Silmarillion, and that kind of, like, closed some of the loopholes, and then decided, you know what, I might as well just write the Silmarillion, too. I've never read the Silmarillion, but... I think I tried to start reading it once. I hadn't I read any of it until about a year ago, a year and a half ago, and I read The Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit in the last year-ish. Yeah. I 18 like- months, I guess. I like The Hobbit. Lord I, of the Rings gets a little too, too detailed for me. Hey, see, I was the opposite. But that's kind of my taste, too. I like my novels rich. With, like, <laughs> mundane details about yeah. what well, they ate for breakfast. Um, <laughs> the, so I was watching Meat Eater the other day, and they were on a just a miserable hunt. It, like, rained for 10 days straight, and they didn't get anything, and it sucked. And uh, he was talking about his favorite hunts are the ones where you have to suffer before you get an animal. He's saying this before they had to leave without getting an animal because they all thought they were going to get an animal. Um, But then he was talking about different levels of fun and the idea of like he he borrowed the Six Flags uh, reference, which Six Flags has nothing to do with the amount of fun. But they had some commercials a few years ago that said, you know, two flags of fun versus six flags of fun or whatever. So, like, swimming in a kiddie pool is one flag, and it's six flags is six flags, you know. And he was talking about different grades of fun as being different flags, you know. So, the idea of, like, getting on a roller coaster, like, nobody, nobody, you know, 20 years later says, remember that roller coaster? Ah, that roller coaster was awesome. But they talk about, like, incredibly difficult things that had a little bit of enjoyment in them as being great. You know, like, you know, remember those, those old hell weeks in football? Oh, those were great. Oh, I hated those. <laughs> right, but we smile and we laugh about them now. And we no, can't. I still... <laughs> <laughs> okay, I smile and laugh about them I remember them now. going to MLC for football camp, and those were the most miserable weeks of my life. Really? And I don't... I don't look fondly on... <laughs> I, I do look fondly on going on Raging Bull at Six Flags. Yeah. So I guess I just proved you wrong. Maybe. Anyway, so the 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 higher the misery that comes before the pleasure, like the greater the rate of misery before the pleasure, the greater the pleasure will be. Yeah, that's true. I think of when I get sick and then I recover. Like I never appreciated being healthy before. And I'm sure that people like if you break your arm or whatever, break your leg and you can't walk for a while, when you finally get that back, like you appreciate it so much more. So I could see that. I think that's valid. How did we get here? What were we were talking about? I have no. You're talking about your visions. <laughs> Jeez. Oh, it's let's okay. go back we're to about Lord visions. of the Rings. Lord we're of the talking Rings, about Lord yeah. of the Rings. So the reason John I John lo- Ronald Rule. Is it Ronald? Yeah. Really? I, I guessed just, it. Yeah, I think that just came to me. Not I, that it I said matters. Ronald like five minutes ago. You did. Ago, yeah, and I think and I was joking. I'm taking credit for it now. Okay. Not that anyone really cares. <laughs> okay, but um, one of my favorite things about that's like that's why I like the Lord of the Rings, is that it's dr- like when they're struggling, like when the the mission that they're on is just drudgery. The book is also kind of just drudgery. 
So when they get to the point of final victory, and then when they get even beyond that, and they have to go back and cleanse the Shire, and it's just like it never ends, right? And even at the very end, what's his name? Sauron doesn't go, like he doesn't die. He just goes off, and you can you can assume he's eventually going to come back again. Yeah. Right? And the way it's written in particular, he's not even going away. He's just going out of sight. He's going on vacation. Right. Like, he's been stripped of all his power. He's powerless, even in the even in Hobbiton. Um, even, the, what do they call it? Even in the... The Shire? The Shire, yeah. Even in the Shire, like, the, the easiest place to conquer, he has no power. But he's not dead. And the idea that it'll come back. But anyway, the, uh, like, you feel it with them, you know? Like, you kind of live it with them more so. Actually, like, yeah, I I get what you're saying. I, two years ago over my vicar year in Green Bay, I read a lot of books. Um, One of the books I read, I would go to the library and I'd get, like, one novel and one nonfiction book. And sometimes I would just like, I would try to read classic books. Usually I wouldn't enjoy reading them. <laughs> so, um, but one time I put on hold Gone with the Wind. I It was a classic book. I, I looked up a list of like 100, top 100 classic books. And that was one of them. I put it on hold. I get it. It's It's like 900 pages long. It took me three three months to read it and when i finally did read it it was because i had put it on hold too many times and i had to return it so for in three days it's a 900 page book i read 300 pages in two months and then i read like the last 600 in three days (laughs) but when i got to the end of it like it has so many details like it'll give you all these details about the main character's dresses that she's wearing like I don't care about those details but then I guess after a while like you almost you're so involved in that story that you feel like you're there even if it is mundane like you I guess I could see that like you're so involved that when you get to the end of it you feel like you actually were in it but it does make it a a slog to read through that. Yeah. I read uh, Pride and Prejudice this year too. And again, like there are times in the book where she, she like doesn't see him for three weeks and she describes what she does. The author describes what she does each of those days where she doesn't see him. And it's just like, why are you telling me all of this? And then when you finally, they do see each other. You would understand, like, again, like you, you said, felt the, you feel it. Yeah. yeah you're, you're experiencing what they... Right. You're going through the same experiences. Wow. And I don't know. I, I think that's why I like those so much. And that's why I enjoy them so much. Maybe and it also is then more enough. relatable. What's that? Maybe I'm just not mature enough to appreciate well, that. Well, I'm, I've tried Gone with the Wind more than once. I don't think I'm ever going to conquer that book. Yeah, I just, I just decided don't care enough about all those details you're talking about. But then you get to chapters like there's a chapter where they're in Atlanta and it's the main character. I can't remember their names, um, but it's the main character, Scarlet. Scarlet, yeah, Scarlet O'Hara. Yep. And 
And uh, so she's in love with this guy, but the guy's married, right? To this, to this. So Scarlet like is this really full of herself. She's good looking. Um, I don't know what else there's about, but she's she's really full of herself. And then there's this guy that's like he's good looking too, and she thinks that it'd be the perfect match. I think is what it is. Um. And so the whole book, she's she hates the guy, the girl that she, that he marries. Even though like this girl, this young lady has never done anything to her except marry the guy that she thought should be with her. And then finally, there's this. Well, then there's this chapter where they're in Atlanta and the soldiers of the the Union soldiers are getting closer and closer, and the tension is just ridiculous and. And uh, this, the wife of the guy is pregnant, and she's having the child as these soldiers are coming. And Scarlet goes out, and she's f- looking for a doctor, and she can't find one. She can't find a doctor, so she has to like figure out what to do with this, and ultimately like deliver the baby as these soldiers are getting closer and closer. And it's so detailed that you feel all this tension and like just getting terrified, like, cause it feels so real. Like the soldiers, I hadn't, I guess that's as the book as a whole. I never, I've studied the civil war, obviously in school and stuff, but you see it in a whole different level there where you realize what the implication was for people that lived through this. Like, especially even in the South, like it's hard to have sympathy when you realize like what they were fighting for, that they're fighting to keep slavery. But you see these pictures of real people. And even with the awkwardness of them, like Scarlet, she's at a plantation and they have slaves. Um, but you still are able to see what an impact this war had on her. Like the soldiers are showing up at her house they're burning down other houses. Um, they're sleeping, like they're all coming and sleeping in the house. And they're, I think that was like the Confederate soldiers are sleeping in the house, I think. And they're taking all this stuff. And you realize you just see like a different side of the war that you didn't really think about. And maybe having all those details makes it different than if it was just. More snapshots, I guess. I don't know. Yeah. Well, it and uh, as uh, modern Americans, we haven't experienced anything like that. Not even in the slightest. And it makes you, I mean, you could go and talk about gender roles, you know, and, and the importance of gender roles in a historical context or in a more brutal context. Um, but it also like you think about World War One and World War Two, and it's so easy from a his, from a stamp like a history book standpoint to be like, why weren't we involved earlier? It's like you think about the bloody century that they had just been through, and the men making the decisions at that point, particular World War One, and and you think even you think about uh, the invasion of Cuba, and just how hard they had to. Like, if you've ever read anything written by Teddy Roosevelt talking about his 
basically trying to convince everyone to go to war in, in Cuba. Um, like it, it was right to do that from a, a from a national security standpoint, from a cigar democracy standpoint. Yeah, just for the good cigars, all that. Right. It, it was probably the right thing to do, but. It took everybody, like, nobody wanted to do it. Same thing with World War One. Waited until it was almost too late, and then we're like, fine. You know, World War Two is even, I mean, even later. Like, literally, if they conquer Britain, they're going to, like, North America's next. And they wait until that point to enter that theater of war. Um and you wait until you're attacked in, in right in Japan, and you wait and you wait and you wait and you wait. But they understood the cost of war. They like it's in their memories, like what it was like to have war on their own soil, and just the lengths they went to to avoid going to war. It yeah. makes more sense when you think about when you have a better understanding of what it would have been like to actually live through those earlier wars. And when you look at what it was like to fight, like in World War One, for example, where you're in the trenches. Like I, I watched 1917, that movie, which is a pretty interesting movie. Um, but you see people in trenches and how miserable that must have been. Like you're, you're just up, you're lying in a muddy trench around wounded and wounded people. You're seeing all kinds of people that are have been killed there's rats it's just miserable and you i couldn't even fathom like having to experience it for a day so it's yeah. easy to look at anything like that from the outside and and say why didn't we do this like why didn't we get involved earlier but if you see it from that point of view where you see people what it actually meant for people who were fighting why would you ever want to be involved? Obviously, like maybe you, maybe if you see like we can help here and we should have been involved, but from when you're thinking about what people had to go through to be in that, yeah, yeah, it really brings a lot of like the uh, it, again, if you read enough history, you see like kind of trends going where like. A lot of times, a country, a country, a nation who isn't at war, and who hasn't been at war, starts to talk about like romantic, make war romantic, right? And uh, you know, like in the '60s, it would be it's it would be really hard to make war romantic in in the '60s in Britain, right? It's going like, look, we've just lived this too much. We're still rebuilding, you know, the city. Like London didn't reach. It's war. It's pre-war population again until 2010. Wow. How insane is that? Wow. Like that's how many people in London died during the Blitz. Like that's intense. That leaves some scars. Um, it's really hard to make that romantic and make it like something you want to do. It's a lot different when. Um, well, I say not not to say that we shouldn't have done anything after September 11th, but you think about the 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 attacks on September 11th, and it was immediate. Just we're going to war, 
Not that that's necessarily the wrong reaction, but there was, you know, the the average American had very little understanding of what war was like, and you're, you know, there were few, if any, um, American you know military personnel who had ever experienced any war, um, and uh, now that we're on the other side of that kind of. It's a lot harder to be gung ho for like, new, you know. <laughs> yeah, I mean stuff. You, that's true with the conflict. I think with Iran now, like nobody wants to get involved. Right there, everyone realizes. Well, we're still fighting. We're still having issues, and like I don't know for yeah. There's fighting in Iraq, in Af- Afghanistan. Like things didn't get better there when we got involved. Yeah, and and you can get into the like the statistics and you know at one time things were going well and when things weren't and there was legitimately a point which you can say we were you know almost there, but then when you start you know pulling troops out it all collapses and so like you know that obviously you and I aren't military minds to plan. I don't know. I like to consider myself a military mind. General Paustian here. I don't know anything about history or the military, but or like anything. to plan out wars. I feel like I could plan a war. Yeah, yeah. You got lots of room in that office over there. You could like set up one of those like war tables. Oh, I have. <laughs> I have. It's like different factions of the congregation. Yeah, this, these it. people fought these people. <laughs> Who would win? That's right. Yeah, yeah. that's true. I do that. Sounds like lots of fun. Yeah, for for people that know nothing about war, we've had a very long con- conversation about we have war. Yeah, but I think it naturally stems again from what we were talking about earlier, though. The it's the idea of freedom from not responsibility, but like freedom. What were we talking about? Before? Well, so before long ago, we were talking about um, the. F- we're talking about grace, basically, and the idea that um, I don't earn my spiritual gifts, yeah, and that the Lord is the one who's moving and shaping. And then we talked about uh, the angels, the angel army, in your yeah, in your vision, <laughs> in my vision. So all these terrible things are happening, but God is still in control. Yeah, and uh, we do absolutely awful things to each other. Um, and that doesn't, we do absolutely awful things to each other. Sometimes even when we're trying to do the right thing, we just do terrible things to each other. And, uh, it's easy to freak out and think that the world is ending and the world very well may be ending, but the Lord still sits on a throne. And when we take the Lord off the throne or when we shrink the throne or when we imagine a very small Lord sitting on a very large throne, (laughs) what? Yeah. Imagining a very tiny chair and a very big god. I'm a, so what I well I think what I tend to do is put a very small god on a very large throne. I've never thought that specifically about the size of the throne. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what I mean? Like I I in theory God has all this power. Like he should be able to do this, but do I really believe he can? Okay. You know, like I have this knowledge in my head that says God can do that. 
like with miracles, you know, we talk about, you know, what, like so often somebody will say, does God still do miracles? And we go, the answer is yes. The Lord is constantly doing miraculous things. But, you know, there's no Jesus walking among us, you know, like healing lepers and giving the blind their sight. But that's not to say that God suddenly has lost the power to do miracles. No, that he is involved in human affairs. Well, he's, yeah, he's intimately involved. But he's not, he doesn't have to use, he's so in control, he doesn't have to use miracles to be involved in everything that happens because he's, he knew, he knows every possible scenario of everything. He knows that if this happens and this other thing, it's like we can't even fathom his level of involvement. And here's a, here's a, uh, we should probably wrap it up pretty soon here, but here's a, here's a concept I want to, I want to wrestle over. Russell? Russell. Russell? Yeah. Isn't Rassel? that, isn't that J.R.R. Tolkien's middle name? Russell? Russell. Russell. Roll or Russell? Rural. Is it really Ronald? John Ronald Rural. Maybe. Token. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, we could just change it to Russell. John That's Russell? Easy. Let's change it to John Ronald Russell because I don't know if I can say <laughs> Rural. Rural. Okay. <laughs> anyway, so somebody made the statement that uh, we diminish the concept of miracles. We diminish the word miracles by assigning it to things that aren't actually miraculous. So, for example, we say... You know, look at that cat giving kittens. Oh, what a miracle of life. And the guy's argument was, that's not miraculous. That's the natural order. That's the way God created things. And it might be really cool and very creative, but is it really a miracle? We were right. We were right. John Ronald Rule. Cool. Um, Yeah, I think we do that with a lot of words. Like, unbelievable, awesome. Yeah, does it really inspire awe? Does the fact that you just finished a uh, two-page paper for me really give me awe? That's kind of insulting to you, actually. You know me? What? Well, no. The per- okay, so I was imagining about- this this student who turns something in says, "Mr. You, I'm finally done with my work," and I say, "Awesome." If it really causes me great awe, if it re- like if I, my reaction really is awe, I'm in awe at the fact that you finished that. That's kind of insulting to the kid. And it's like, wow, you did work. <laughs> yeah, that's it's true. like awesome. Yeah, yeah, that's yep. Yeah, yeah, I use that word a lot. Well, it's too late. Might as well just <laughs> unbelievable, incredible. Yeah. Anyway, I want you to. Uh, so, is like for example, Ridiculous. is a beautiful sunrise a miracle? And is you know someone no. giving birth a miracle? The pe- the virgin birth. Okay, beyond that. No. No, obviously it's not. Yeah. Like, it can still be amazing because God did that too. Just because it's It'd still be awesome. Miracle. Like, God does everything. God causes natural things to happen too. Yeah. Unless it was a really cool childbirth. <laughs> Your birth wasn't cool. His was pretty that cool. That was awesome. That was awesome. Truly awesome in every, <laughs> in the full sense of the word. Yeah. 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 No. Um, yeah. I, 
kind of lost. Oh, the miracles. Miracles, yeah. yeah. Miracle. <laughs> the miracle of childbirth. Yeah. It is truly a miracle. Is it, though? No. <laughs> yeah. And then when we actually do see miracles, we chalk them up to something else. So I've never seen a miracle. Right, but when we see things that are miraculous, and we do see things that are miraculous, but we... Even... Uh, so when miraculous things actually happen, so when someone who's terminally ill just gets better, which happens sometimes, that's a miracle. Like when something yeah. cannot be explained, it's a miracle. And we chalk it up to like, immune system must have been strong. Well, you know, that's there the is guy a guy cranked that real that wheel real well because you'll start to claim things are miracles that aren't. And well, things and like that, and then if somebody finds an explanation for it, like you true. were just saying, like that's true. somebody gets better from a. Well, it could be like sometimes there are medical things where it's like this should not have happened. Yeah. And we can say it's a miracle. But like you said, you were kind of saying earlier, if you start calling everything a miracle, then people think that if they prove, oh, there's a scientific explanation for this now, there's no, like they've somehow disproved God. But even if you do find a scientific explanation, God does science too. Like God's the one that made it work that way. So either way, I guess you're okay. Yeah. Well, to wrap it up, we got two questions for you, as always. First of all, if you go back and talk to your 18-year-old self, what would you say? Don't uh, room with Charlie. <laughs> don't don't, <laughs> don't hang did. all those posters on the wall. <laughs> you're you're going to regret it. No, I think I would say it's going to be okay. That's what I would say. I remember, well, 18-year-old, so we I, we were seniors in high school. I was a senior in high school. I would have been 17, but. Yeah. I did not really enjoy high school. I don't think it was my best time of life. <laughs> and if I think of, well, that's a thing too. Like for me, um, as I go through life, I tend to, wherever I'm at now, I think of, I put a lot of, I kind of talk to myself like, wow, you really should be better at all of these different things. But if I think back, like if I think back to who I was when I was 18, it's like a totally different person. Like that's 10 years ago for me now. The person I was when I was 18, if if I told my 18-year-old self what I'm doing now and that it's not and how it's going and like what I'm how I'm doing um I don't think I would believe it. It would be unbelievable. It would be a miracle. <laughs> no, I so I think I would tell my 18-year-old self who is probably wondering how things were going to turn out and if it would really um for all the challenges that go with being 18, like it's not a fun time of life for a lot of people. For for me it wasn't. Like there was a lot of things that it wasn't sure about like for myself like I didn't know if I could be a teacher I didn't know what I could do I didn't I struggled with other things too like socially and um, mentally and if I so I would tell my 18 year old self like you're going to get through this like God's going to get you through this and you're going to be you're going to be like you're not going to believe how God's going to allow you to grow in all these different ways. Like things are going to get better. 
and you're going to be better off. Even if there are struggles, you're going to be better off 10 years from now. And it's nothing to do with you. Like you can't really take credit for it. Like there are all kinds of people who helped me to get where I'm at today. And I mean, I hope I can say I've used the gifts that God gave me. I can't take credit for that either. Um, but yeah, I think my 18-year-old self could have used some encouragement maybe. <laughs> yeah. 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 That's what I would say. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. It's going to be okay. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. That's what I would say. Right. I don't know. I can't, I, I also can't really remember a whole lot of what it was like to be 18 anymore. That's true. But that's what I think I would say. Yeah. My 18 year old self would probably be like, okay, all right. I think I'm doing pretty good right now. So thanks. Yeah, that's true. That's true. I, yeah, I think, yeah. No, I think if I told my 18 year old self that I'm a pastor, first of all, that would be like, that'd be ridiculous. I'd end up there. (laughs) No, you're not. And also like I'm preaching in front of, 300 people every weekend like when I was in high school and I, I remember going through speech class and just the worst first of all I thought that I could just get up and give speeches without ever practicing them what in the world when I never <laughs> why would I ever think that yeah um I thought of that too with uh somebody someone who's talking about how Martin Luther King Jr like did really poorly in speech class in college. And somebody was like, well, that just goes to show you like, you can't always believe what your like some, what your teachers tell you or like your professors, like people won't believe in you, but you just got to believe in yourself. Like maybe he was a terrible speech, like terrible at speeches in college. And he just got better. Like he worked on it. Yeah. That doesn't mean that he wasn't like, they just didn't see his potential. Like maybe he was spent years as a pastor before he was given national speeches too. Yeah, like just because he was got a bad grade doesn't mean it was the teacher's fault. Like maybe he was bad at. Like I think of myself. Like I was a terrible, I was terrible at giving speeches in high school. Hopefully I'm better now. (laughs) (laughs) But that wasn't the teacher's. It wasn't like the teacher just didn't see potential in me. Like it was actually bad. Yeah, I don't know what the lesson is there, but (laughs) yeah. Well, we yeah we discount growth. You know, Uh, somebody also, the other one that always comes up is Michael Jordan, you know, getting cut from his, well, he got cut from the varsity squad. When he was a freshman, right? As a freshman, which really isn't even getting, like, I don't know. Like, you're not really getting cut. Yeah. But, so he expected to be on the varsity. And then he talks about all the time, worked his butt off to make the... Uh, to make the team then the next year, the varsity squad. Yeah, so maybe he didn't. He probably didn't deserve to be on varsity then. You say you're talking about one of the hard, like documented, one of the hardest working people in the game, ever. If he didn't wear that work ethic, would he have been as great as he was? You know, like we and, de- we 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 do like ah, that coach must have been an idiot. Yeah, with, no. Or like with Albert Einstein. People say, like, I think it's Albert Einstein, right? Yeah. Where they're like, oh, he got D's in math. I'm pretty yeah. sure that's not even true. Like, he was a genius. 
Like, just because yeah. you got bad grades in grade school doesn't mean you're going to be a genius. Right. Yeah, you can't just, like, make that yourself. Yeah, Yeah, it's like, well, you're doing bad now. But. Well, and he was an abstract thinker. That's why he was doing abstract things. So I guess in that sense, yeah. like, you have to realize that even if you are bad at school, like, you, you have other gifts. Yeah. Just because you're, I guess in that sense, it is good. I don't want to disparage that idea because everybody, even if you're a bad student, like, you, everyone has gifts. Yeah. Just different gifts. And if you don't have gifts, it doesn't mean you have if you don't, you can't just be like, well, I don't have these gifts and blow off school either. Yeah, but. you got to be a good student, but you also got to, for all the students out there listening, be a good student. Try yeah. your try your best. Work hard. You might not succeed all the time, but it's worth it. Yeah. Otherwise, you'll just oh, for sure. end up on the streets. <laughs> <laughs> or no future for you. Yeah. <laughs> no, work hard, but if you're a bad student, you know, You'll find something else that you're good at. Yeah. Last question then. Okay. What does it mean to be a man or what makes a Christian man? What What does it mean to be a man? Or like, what makes yeah. a Christian man? You know? Well, um, yeah, I guess I, I knew you were going to ask this. I guess I don't think about this a lot, but... As a man who is also a Christian, I guess uh, ultimately the first—I mean, the first calling that we have is to be a Christian, and ultimately, what that means is to trust in Christ. So, the first thing to be a Christian man, I guess, is to realize that. I have nothing really to offer this world apart from my faith in Christ, apart from what the gospel works in me. But so I guess it starts there. And then how do I live that out? Um I guess I try to I don't know, that's uh I got to think through that. Um what does it mean to be a Christian man? I try to, uh, on the one hand, realize my my shortcomings, I guess. It's always trying to balance realizing my own shortcomings, but also realizing that as a Christian, that. I do have a free will that I am able to serve God. Um, and not letting that's, I guess it's that battle between the sinful nature and the new self fighting off the temptation to be, to kind of have this responsibility, but not use it like kind of let, let other people do the work kind of like be okay with not taking responsibility for things kind of being passive um i guess being a christian and realizing what the gospel said doesn't mean like oh nothing really matters like what we do in this life matters everything we do as christians matters it's like it doesn't ultimately fall on us but 
as a Christian man, I want to carry out the role that God has given me to be a, I mean, as a pastor too, I have this specific role to be a leader and, and I'm learning what that means, especially having been a student for so long where you don't really have a lot of responsibility. Um, as a student, you kind of learn what you have to do and what you can let go. And a lot of it is like, I guess for me, it was like a little bit of that was like laziness, not, I don't really know where I'm going with this. <laughs> well, I think you hit it right on the head when you said, um, there's a lot of temptation to let other people do the work, right? Like right. to let, to just sit back and just exist um, and say, look, God's got it under control. Look, man, I have no responsibility here. And just to brush it off um, instead of engaging life um, and saying, you know, what can I, what, what is the Lord going to do with me today? You know, yeah, what can the I th- Lord and I do together today? Yeah. I think you got me. I think you just got me to figure out where I was going with that. Okay, go ahead. So I think as a student, you learn to be kind of an observer where you're not the one that's ultimately responsible for things. So a lot of things, you see things going on and you're like, well, um, that was probably one of the big stressful things for me. Like when you're just an observer, you can kind of laugh when things are ridiculous and crazy. Like it's just kind of funny. But when you're in charge and things are bad, then you just like, at least for me, it just becomes so much more stressful. And then it's easy to be tempted to just like go back to being an observer where you can laugh about these things, like things that go wrong. And like, ultimately you should be able to laugh about laugh at yourself and laugh at things, but you're not just an observer. Like you are a part of this and what you do matters. So maybe that would be the biggest thing, like a Christian man taking responsibility, um, not just being an observer in life, but actually realizing what impact you can make on the world. Even if like all of your efforts are obviously flawed, you're never going to be the perfect, you're never going to have the perfect solution to whatever problem comes up, but just doing something and not being a perfectionist and thinking you have to have the perfect answer. And like, I've had that problem plenty of times where waiting for the perfect answer, you don't do anything, but you just need to do something. Um, and realize, like starting with the gospel then, you realize in the end, it's going to be okay. God's going to take care of you. Just take the opportunities that he's putting in front of you. Take responsibility. Um, stay in the gospel and give yourself the law too because you need that. And then just go out and enjoy doing the things that God gives you to do. And I think for me that's easier said than done. Obviously it's it's always a saying something and doing it isn't a whole nother thing. But I think at at the heart of it I've realized that that's a big that's kind of sums it up, I think. You just live in the gospel, 
take the opportunities, do the things that God gives you to do. Don't just be an observer. Don't. I probably should have just stopped two sentences ago. <laughs> you heard what I said. You know yeah. what I'm saying. Yeah, absolutely. I well, appreciate your time, man. Thanks yeah. for being on. Yeah, thanks. Thanks, cousin. Well, it was fun. Yeah. Blessings on your ministry here at Bethlehem. Thank you. Blessings on your ministry. And in Saloa. Yeah. Milwaukee. Good place to be. Yeah. Thank you for listening to the Gird Up Podcast. If you like what you're hearing on our podcast, make sure you're sharing it with friends and family, men in your life who you think need to hear our message. You can find us on social media, on Facebook under the Gird Up Podcast, and there's a Gird Up community as well there where you can interact with other men on the journey toward Christian manhood. You can find us on Instagram as girdup underscore like underscore a underscore man. If you'd like to help us bring our message to more men just like you all around the world, you can hit up our Patreon account. Type in www.patreon.com forward slash girdup. And finally, please leave a five-star rating or review on whatever platform you use to listen to our podcast, whether it's iTunes or Spotify. What that does is it helps us get more attention in the podcast world and bring more men to our message. Thank you again for listening to our podcast. Thank you for all the ways you support us and help spread the word. Until next time, go gird up and be the man that God created you to be.